So last week we began an introduction of Titus. And what did we learn of Titus? Not mentioned in Acts, but especially through Corinthians, very dear brother and encouragement to Paul. Yeah. Yeah, great, really great points both uh, right there. Um, as, as prominent as he is, uh, both in, in 2 Corinthians and Galatians, really it is interesting that he's, he's not in Acts. Uh, we don't find him there. Um, what, else, what else do we know about Titus? Actually comes out in his name a little bit as well. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and we mentioned not even a proselyte, uh, because uh, when in Galatians Paul brought him back to Jerusalem, uh, many in the church of the Jewish you know, heritage wanted to see him circumcised, and that led to uh, conflict, uh, also led really to the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Uh, there, so that's who Titus was. So just a really powerful co-worker of Paul's, uh, faithful co-worker of Paul's, and uh, we're going to see that ultimately play out here this morning as we kind of conclude the introduction and go into uh, what we see as as the qualification uh, for elders uh, within the church. Paul's introduction in verse 1 is not uncommon. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We mentioned, too, why Paul might be so formal in his letter if he is familiar with Titus. I mean, if he's that intimate with Titus, why are we being so formal and stuffy that you are an apostle? I know you're an apostle. So why was this? be read by others yeah and you know kind of an aside this speaks to the authoritative nature of scripture for us today you know that this that this isn't a a concoction of the church that it grew up naturally within the church through the empowering of the Holy Spirit to give guidance to the church. It was so then that those who read this letter to Titus would see the authoritative nature because it was written by an apostle. And so we too today see its authoritative nature. Not because the church says it's authoritative, but it is inherently authoritative. It is inherent within. It was, it, it, was, it was authoritative when it was penned by Paul under the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, an, an, important, an important point uh, there kind of to highlight. Paul goes in, in the, in the first verses, again, we're still kind of in a recap here. Uh, his, he has a very purposed ministry. Uh, and he speaks of his ministry general in his introduction. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So, 
for the, you know, for the sake of the elect, yes, but for the sake of the faith of the elect, um, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We spoke also of the elect. Um, it is hopefully for the believer that is a doctrine, that is a truth of Scripture that brings you great comfort and not consternation. Um, you know, that, that I am elect of God. Because if it were something else, I would fail. If it were based on merit, I would fail. You would fail. The only way anybody can be saved is by God's choosing because nobody will merit that. Nobody can do that. We are dead in our sins. There's no, dead men don't respond. You know, physically dead, don't, they don't move. Spiritually dead, they're not going to respond to the prompting of God unless God brings them to life. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, their knowledge of the truth. Paul's ministry, the, the import, he, he understood that the importance of his ministry was that people understand the truth, that the elect understand the truth. This must be important within the church, that we understand the truth. This implies that there is a truth. That there is a truth to be known. And not only a truth to be known, but there is a truth that is revealed. It is revealed. It has been made known. We talked about how there is no faith apart from the truth. I mean, how can you, how can you believe something unless you know the truth? Otherwise, you're just making stuff up. You're hanging your hat on air. It doesn't work. There is no foundation. There is no substance. You have to know the truth to believe the truth. And Paul indicates that there is no godliness apart from that either. It accords with godliness. It is in harmony with godliness. And this points us to eternal life in verse 2. So, his ministry for the sake of the elect, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Okay. It, it, it gives us this, our faith together with the truth gives us a sure hope of eternal life. A sure hope of eternal life. And this, all of these things are anchored in God's good purpose. This is God's good purpose. And so as we understand God's good purpose, Paul emphasizes who this God is. God never lies. He is true. He is truth. Jesus Christ himself identified that when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And if God the Son, the Word in flesh, is truth, it shouldn't surprise us then that the entirety of his Word is truth 
as Psalm 119, 160 declares. And other passages throughout Scripture declare this as well. That it is the truth, that God is truth, He never lies. Man, what, a, what an encouragement. That should be an encouragement to us today. And, and really, this, that should make us cling to this. Like a life raft. Man, like a you know, life, life, life preserver out there. And you're stuck in a lake and you are miles and miles from shore, and there's a life preserver next to you, you're a dope if you don't grab the life preserver and put it on. Because there's probably going to be a time where you are too tired to keep swimming and you just need to hang out for a while. And that life preserver is going to hold you fast. God promised this eternal life when... Yes. Uh, let's see. Sarah, since you answered, would you flip back to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. This is kind of where we left off last week here. I wanted to weigh in on this just a little bit more. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And read that, please. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. When did this happen? Before the foundation of the world. Yeah. I mean, you weren't even a twinkle in your mom and dad's eye yet because your mom and dad weren't even a twinkle in their grandparents, your grandparents' eyes yet. Because nobody was yet. God had already ordained at that point. He, would or, he ordained that you would be here uh, even today. And, and that should... I'm, you're, we, are, we are set. We are set in space and time history. From your conception to your death and on into eternal life. But God has always known who you are and who you would be. That's really an extraordinary thought there to testify who this God is. But he didn't keep it a secret. He has revealed it in his proper time and that's what Paul is declaring here. God, yes, he promised this before the ages began, but in verse 3, and at the proper time he manifested in his word... He made known in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So how is this truth now made known to Titus and to other believers? Or to other people? Not even believers. Yes to believers. Preaching. Preaching. Preaching and teaching and proclamation and evangelism and speaking by communicating the word. How, how, how do we communicate? We communicate in words. Maybe a tweet. But, you know, that tweeting, not hard to have a deep and intimate relationship on Twitter. 
to have relationships with one another and to be able to share the gospel, to share the truth. What is that truth? Paul's burden is to preach it. And so now that it is known, he preaches what? The word. He preaches the word. He preaches the word here. God entrusted him to this by the command of God, by the command of God, our Savior. So again, you just see the authoritative nature of Paul's preaching and therefore the authoritative nature of this letter to Titus. And hopefully the believers who read it go, oh, okay. It's not, it's not just something to be dismissed. Um, we are in a, we're in a very... The church has gotten to be very Burger King in its attitude or smorgasbord. You know, you're going to go to Hunan's. If you've ever been to Hunan's, it's like there's 8,000 buffet rows to go through of Chinese food and you can pick it all or you could just stay at one and pile your plate eight times over and, and like pick what you want well that's what the church has become well pick what you want you know whatever whatever tastes good to you that's what you should eat um but that's not that's not the word um the word is what it is i can't pick and choose it I have to proclaim what it says. That's why, uh, you know, if we are doing a, a study of uh, something in here, most of the time we go through the whole thing. Why? Because there are really awkward verses that we go, they're in here. If they are truth, we have to work through them. We have to understand what God is proclaiming to us because it is authoritative to us in our lives. And so he gets to, uh, to the greeting here, to Titus, uh, verse 4. Uh, Emma, would you read verse 4 of Titus 1, please? To Titus, my true child, and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Why does he call Titus that? My true child. Okay, that's the question. What does he mean by a child? Well, does it mean he's young? Uh, it says, uh, my true child in a common faith. So that would make me think that since we often use our faith, you know, maybe it, since you teach us who we are, a father in faith perhaps, or you know, a brother in faith, a sister in faith. So since uh, Paul was mentoring Titus and teaching him perhaps <coughs> Yeah, very good. Rob Woodruff is my spiritual father. And he's gone home to be with the Lord. Now, he was the head of the Officers Christian Fellowship at the Air Force Academy when I went through. And he discipled me and mentored me in what meant to walk with the living God. And I'm ever grateful for him. Uh, and so, you know, as if I were Titus, he is my Paul. He is my Paul. Uh, it is likely, very likely, as with Timothy, that Titus came to faith because of his relationship with Paul. 
came to know Christ as Savior. And so Paul saw him as his son in the faith. Um, my true child. And again, it's, notice he says it's a common faith. It is a common faith. That doesn't mean it's just it's plain and ordinary. But it means it's, it's the same. It's the same. There's a unity. There is no schism there. There is no division. There is no rift there. It is a common faith. There, there, a unity. The implication of unity is there uh, within the church. And then he, he, gives, he gives what is his really common hello to all the churches. And we, can, we could blitz right through this. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's like we had a rote prayer at, at when I grew up uh, that we said at the dinner table every night. It was the same thing every night. Blah, 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 blah. It might as well have been that as a kid because it was, didn't, hardly ever meant anything because we didn't think about it. So grace and peace. Grace. How important is Grace. Again, I've got no merit. I've got nothing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Let us come boldly before the throne of to obtain mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to come boldly before the throne of grace. We can. We can because of Christ. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, again, grace given to us. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Um, grace. You know, and so grace, man, Paul wants his hearers to abide in this grace. Grace to you. Grace is to you. Grace is to you. And peace. Why can we have peace? Bing. Bing. Grace work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. John uh, 1427 and 1633. 1427 and 1633. Great verses about peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. In the world you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. My peace. My peace. God is not, he has no anxiety. There is no uh, uh, stress, pressure, uh, you know. Oh, what's going on in Washington? Oh, who's going to be the next president? Oh, what's in Europe? Oh, the border, blah. 
You know, God's not, he's not wringing his hands over any of that. And so I don't have to sit in a corner with my, you know, in a lotus position. I don't have to make sure my room is all feng shui or whatever. You know, I don't have to have essential oils to make sure that, no, my peace is from the Lord. That is where is peace. That is wherein we find peace. And both are ours, and Paul emphasizes this. The source is what? From God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior, and what's missing? The Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before. Why do we always find the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit's not there? If, in fact, the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit. Okay. Part? Yeah, he's, he's not a... He's a well, the Spirit's role is to shine light on the others, so He doesn't shine light on Himself. Absolutely. You know, the work, the finished work is Jesus Christ's, as sent by God the Father. Yeah, the the, yeah and the Holy Spirit is, is working in us, in all of us together. And this is, this is such a beautiful thing with regard to the Holy Spirit. God is within me individually but God is within us the Holy Spirit making a what? Connection. Which we call a church. God the Holy Spirit assembles the church as he sees fit and gifts each one of us as he sees fit for the good and the edification of us all. And so as he's writing to the church here in the authority of God the Father and God the Son, he is really working with God the Holy Spirit in them to hear and believe. So it's, it's really a beautiful thing to be able to. So any, that, that kind of wraps up the introduction. Any questions or thoughts or comments on the introduction before we wade into these, this next section on the appointing of elders? Okay, to this point, we have not mentioned where Titus is. Somebody read verse 5. Isn't that nice? I turn off the light. Um, Paul is in, or Titus is in Crete. Uh, in Acts, we don't ever see Paul in Crete. We see them sail past Crete. 
uh, on, on his voyage to Rome. Here's Cyprus, here is uh, Jerusalem down here, kind of the far eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. So as they sailed out from Cnidus down here, they came south around Crete. And in Acts 27, we see that they were really anchored outside of Fair Havens there, Lycia, in Crete. And we're going to try to make Phoenix for the winter because it would be a better harbor for them. And so they pushed out of Fair Havens, and that's when <laughs> the wind blew up. And off they went on their venture, which ultimately had them uh, shipwrecking in Malta, way over there south of Sicily. So they were, they got blown for a long time and a long way. Um, but we don't see Paul in Crete in Acts. So when did he go to Crete? After he was released from his first Roman imprisonment, Paul had intended to go to Spain, wanted to go to Spain. Did he? We don't know. Some believe he did. But at some point, Paul makes it to Crete because that's what he says here. This is why I left you in Crete. So for some reason, there during the ministry... Paul has to leave. We've seen that before. You know, he had to leave because of opposition uh, in the past. Sometimes he leaves because he's compelled to go someplace else uh, or to make a feast or a festival in uh, Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, he leaves, but he leaves Titus in Crete here. And we see his purpose for leaving Titus in Crete in verse 5. What were the purposes? That's one of them. Put things in order. To put things in order. Well, the appoint elders is very clear. To put things in order is not so clear. This remained in order, so it kind of implies that. Yeah, so it kind of implies that the church was starting to fall apart a little bit. So think of the churches being built up, being first planted there, and if elders are still having to be appointed, then you know it. It, it really hasn't been fully built, completed. So things that were remaining yet to do. But that's, that's exactly what you want to wrestle with, Caleb, on questions like that. Is it this or is it this? And which plays out more logically in the text or as other texts will bear. <clears throat> and again, what we're going to see in this letter are the things that remained. You know, the letter is going to highlight some of the things uh, that Paul is exhorting Titus to do. But notice at the end of verse 5, notice that little phrase. Is, is this all new to Titus? Yeah. Okay, so you go, oh. why is Paul telling Titus to do 
Do what I told you to do. Forget. See a child? Okay, that could that again, that could be that could be a reason. It's a public letter, it's gonna further Titus's legitimate Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we get we get no no inkling anywhere that Titus is a slacker. None. Quite the contrary. Everything is that, you know, he is, he is a trustworthy guy. But what authority does he have? If he's got the king's edict, if he's got the king's authority, if he's got a letter from the king that says, I am authorized to do this, then all of the subjects are going to go, okay, hopefully, and not rebel. Well, Titus has an apostolic letter from Paul saying these things that you and I already talked about, okay, these are the things I want you to keep doing. These are the things I want you to do. And the people read that and go, okay. So should they simply take Titus's word for it? They can. Would it be good if they did? Yeah. Okay, good. You know, I, I think of I think of uh, my children. Let's use an example of my children. Uh, when Austin was younger, we would occasionally leave him at home with the girls there. And if Austin told them to do something, should they do it? Yes, they should. Should have. Not saying anything. <laughs> now, if if Austin had to play the trump card and say, Mom and Dad told me to have you do this, there's now greater authority or perceived authority because that authority was always his. By the simple fact that he was doing what he was doing, that authority was already his. But if I have to pull out the card, if, to ha if I have to pull rank... There's, you know, from a military perspective, I'm the commander. So, again, it, it just gives a, a great authority to what's, what's going on. And Paul now takes off on the idea of appointing elders. Uh, there is a very similar listing or exhortation to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, on this very same thing of appointing elders within the church. Um, so the idea of appointing elders uh, is at Paul's direction, but it is not new. This is what they did. When they built churches and established churches in Acts chapter 14 at the end of the first missionary journey, as they went back through Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, they went back and appointed elders to continue the work of ministry. That's what they did. Uh, as Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 21, he calls the Ephesian elders and essentially commissions them with what they need to be doing in the church. 
And when our church here transitioned from simply being a pastor-led church with deacons to an elder-led church, we spent time to wade into this topic. And it's an important topic to understand because I believe Scripture is really very clear on the design that God's intended design for the church is for have, is to have elders uh, lead uh, his church. So, first of all, the the word elder uh, is is uh, I'm, I'm going to be throwing a lot of Greek out here because the the Greek words are interesting here. Presbyteros, okay, presbyteros, from which we get the word presbyterian. Presbyterian, you know, and none of none of our the the OG OPC church guys are here with us uh, this morning. But uh, Presbyterian, which means what? Old man. It means old man, literally. Presbyterian. Presbyteros. Presbyterian. It means old man. Um, literally, appoint old men. Okay, so is that what Paul is exhorting? Appoint old men. He's going to give qualifications here. And some of the qualifications are unique, and we're going to have to wrestle with some of them. But age is never mentioned. Age is never mentioned. Okay. Does a man being old make him wise in the faith? Does it make him mature in the faith? No. I could have been walking for walking with Christ for 30 years and still be a babe in Christ. You know, that is that is not God's design for us to remain as babes, but to grow in maturity here. So it would seem very plain especially as we go through the qualifications, that it is one who is mature in Christ, an older man in Christ that way. And one of the um, qualifications in 1 Timothy is that an elder not be one who is new in the faith so that he not be puffed up with pride. Okay, in having a position of leadership. Um, so really one who has been walking with the Lord for a time and mature in the faith. In verse 7, we see another word added. And he uses it almost synonymously. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, which is almost an echo of what he says in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. And we'll talk about being above reproach in a little bit, but just kind of looking at the words here, the word for overseer is episkopos, from which we get the word episcopal, episcopalian. You know, so you've got the Presbyterians and the Episcopalian. Where are the Baptists here? Uh, episcopal. You think scope? What is a scope? Something look through. Okay, so it's also. The, the root is the word, uh, we get the word skeptic from it, scopos. 
skeptic or to examine. A skeptic is one who is, uh, you know, he's perennially in doubt. He's always questioning. He's always examining. So an episkopos is one who over-examines, okay? Examines over, an overseer, really. I mean, it's really a great, great translation of the word, an overseer, to watch over. So an elder, again, just in those words, you get a sense of who should be leading and shepherding the church. It should be one who is older in his relationship with Christ. And he has the responsibility to oversee and shepherd the body. Okay, if I am going to be overseen by an elder, what does that imply for me? As a, as a member, as a member of the church, if I'm going to be, Under yes, we don't like that though. Do I have to be obedient to the elders in my church? Submissive. Okay. Do I have to be submissive to the elders in my church? Okay. There's you know this American thing keeps. Just keeps coming up. Eh, no, yeah, no. I'm an, I'm an independent, but that's not what we see in God's word. We see this submissiveness. Yes, this loophole is always there because there has to always be the tension in us of I am not just gonna when when Jeremy preaches today. I'm not just gonna open wide and go ah, you know, bring it in. Like, you know, you think of the, the gray whales as they take the krill and everything else that's in the ocean, just they take it all in. That's not how we are supposed to be. Okay, you think of the, the whale then with the baleen, then flushing all the water out and straining out the bad and retaining the good. Ah, yes, that's what we want to do. We want to hear, to take it in, to ruminate on it, to think on it, and we do want to submit to that word. We do. Because God has ordained, this is awkward to say, being one of them here in our church, but God has ordained elders for this purpose. To oversee us. This is a good thing and a blessing. And this is also why it says elders, not elder. You see, this truth also is that it should be, if possible, elders. Because they need to be submissive to one another. They need to be able to get in each other's grill or chili uh, 
they need to exhort and encourage one another as well. So, two great words there. Um, you know, you write them in your margin. There. Episcopos and presbyteros. They're elder and overseer. So these are the ones he was to appoint. Where was he to appoint them? In every town. Okay, so there were churches all over Crete. There wasn't the church at Crete. It's a big island. So every community had its own church. So does that mean there should only be one Baptist church in Wichita Falls? No, it can't be. It's too big. And we see that in other of Paul's letters, the Church of Rome. You know, he, he talks about the churches that met in their house. The church that met in their house. So that implied there were multiple churches within the cities. There. Absolutely nothing wrong with this. This is a good thing. So, we're, we'll, again... The remaining, putting what remains in order a little bit later. So into the qualifications we will go here. We'll start dipping our toe into verse 6. Uh, here probably won't conclude it this week. We'll plan on concluding the uh, responsibilities or the character qualities of elders uh, next week. But we'll start out here. He is supposed to be above reproach. An elder is supposed to be above reproach. The word means to call into account. Okay. Or the, actually, the Greek word is, is a negative. It's a negative word. So the, the, the positive of the word is to accuse or to lay charge to. Okay. To prove a debt, essentially. That would be the positive. The negative word that is used here is he doesn't have a debt. There is no debt. He has no accusation against him. His record is clean. Does this mean he is without sin? No. Absurd. If anyone says he is without sin, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. Okay? So, how do we balance that out? If he's supposed to be above reproach, but... He's a sinful man. So who, who, who then can be an elder? Repentant. Okay. He's a murderer. Okay. I mean, we don't. We know what it means for someone to be above reproach. You know, first of all, you have to know about the person's life. You have to see their life. You have to live with them. And you go, no, he's not, he's not perfect, but boy, wow. 
you know, if, as, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. To be able to say that, follow me, follow me as I follow the Lord, and you look at their life and you go, I'm not sure I want to. An elder you should look at and go, yes, I do want to follow that. I want, I want to be like that. I want to live my life that way. I want to have a... This is, this is why marriage comes up in here. I want to have a marriage like that. Okay? I want to, have, I want to train up my children like that. Are their kids going to be perfect? We're, we're going to look at that because, because there's a very interesting qualification here for the children of an elder in Titus that is not found in Timothy. And again, we're going to have to wrestle with that. But, but you look at them and you go, yes, I want to be like that. So he's above reproach. Does that mean he's without sin? Does that mean he's without major sin? Generally, yes. Can he be divorced? Boy, that's an argument. Well, when was he divorced? Why was he divorced? Was he divorced as a believer? Did he divorce his wife as a believer? Did he divorce his wife because he was unfaithful? Did he divorce his wife because she was unfaithful? There's a lot to work through in that. How long ago was it? Was there repentance? How do we see his life since then? You know, is there a mark of above reproachedness looking back on his life? Not a day, not a week, not a month, but years. You know, there is faithfulness in this. He is above reproach. And oh, by the way, how important is this? This is really important because he mentions it again in verse 7. Oh, by the way, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. And so, as an elder, this isn't something I should wring my hands over. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna face plant because I'm looking at the wrong thing. How do I live my life above reproach? How can I live my life above reproach? Well, you have to show that you're trustworthy, and what you, I mean, if I say I'm gonna do something and I want to be trustworthy, I should do that. Okay. Uh, I think one of the things that makes Christianity one of the most authentic religion in the world is that it's counterintuitive and so you don't you show that your life is above reproach by not trying to show that it's above reproach we are transformed one, one degree of glory to the other not by trying to be transformed but by beholding the Lord and so seeking the Lord and putting him first and following him or all those basic things what that looks like in the day to day if you're focusing on him then the Holy Spirit and he works the rest out beautiful I don't I don't run by looking at my feet. I'm a face plant. You know, I'm not looking at myself when I'm running. Man, I kind of look to where I'm going. Where am I going? To Christ. That is my focus. He is the one that lights my way around me where I can see everything with clarity. 
find my nourishment, my soul, and my satisfaction, my life, and my enjoyment, and my delight in my Lord. And when I do that, my life, it is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the thing I want to leave you guys with as we go out from here today, as we close up our Sunday school on this, because we'll, we'll look at all of these things in greater detail next week, is this just for elders? No, it ought not be. In fact, the same word is used for the deacons in Timothy. The, t- the deacons are to be above reproach. Well, if it's true of elders and deacons, who else should it be about? It should be about the saints. The saints should be above reproach. We should all be above reproach. Are we? No. Because we are all at different levels of glory. We are all at different levels in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But this this almost mirror, this very clear mirror in our faith should make us go, ooh, ooh, maybe I need to wear my hair differently. You know, maybe I, maybe I need to do some different things because, ooh, I'm not looking so good. It's an x-ray. It's an MRI. It's a blood test. And so hopefully this should move us to our relationship with Christ, to follow hard after him, that we might be able to say to our brothers and sisters in Christ, not, not that I want to necessarily aspire to be an elder. Not a bad thing to aspire to be, though. But that I can, at the very least, go follow me as I follow Christ. And that's true of teenagers and young adults and us older gents as well all right next week we will look in greater detail at the qualifications of an elder and we'll try and make it through the end of verse nine that's it